So it's kind of interesting being in the uh, aftermath of the Connect series. Jinha and I were um, kind of in the car park, and she looked at me and she said, it feels kind of weird not coming here at 11 o'clock in the morning and staying here all day. And I was like, yeah, kind of, it does feel like we, the day has been a bit shortened. But um, nevertheless, it's really nice to be here in the afternoon to spend um, a thoughtful moment with you. Um, for those of you who have seen the newsletter, we're starting a new sermon series uh, on the book of Matthew. And uh, I wanted to do a brief introduction of the book of Matthew before I share about this sermon series. And so um, the message for today is entitled Jesus and Morality. And uh, just to give you a little bit of a brief introduction to this book, um, Matthew was written in a time of controversy. And if you can think back to um, the time of Matthew, uh, the this tax collector who was called by Jesus to be one of the 12 disciples, um, this book was written in a time just after when Jesus had ascended into heaven. There's lots of controversy over what actually happened to Jesus. There's one group of religious people who kind of look at what happened and they say, listen, we know that his body is not in the tomb, but we think that his disciples came, stole his body outside of the tomb and hid it somewhere else and just claimed that he had raised from the dead. And so this one group completely did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They didn't believe that Jesus has resurrected. And on the other hand, you have this large group of believers who say, no, Jesus did resurrect. And the fact that there isn't a tomb, or excuse me, that there isn't a body in the tomb proves this. So it's about the time of 40 AD, and uh, presumably um, Caesar, I believe it's, um, excuse me, it's Claudius Caesar who listens to both sides of the argument. He's frustrated with what happens, and he makes something called the Nazarite Creed, or uh, excuse me, the Nazarite Decree in AD 50. And what happens is, Throughout Israel, there are these stone slabs, and basically it reads something like uh, like what follows. Um, it states that Jesus of Nazareth, um, oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. The stone slab had an imperial decree warning of capital punishment for those violating tombs and pointing to the seriousness which was, uh, with which disturbing graves and moving dead bodies was held in the ancient world. And so basically... Um, Claudius Caesar listens to both sides of the argument, says, okay, I've had enough, um, I'm making this decree, no more tomb robbing. And so it's at this time where Matthew starts gathering these gospel stories and he puts together um, this book. Now, this book is important because it's in the context of this division that the book of Matthew arrives, or the gospel according to Matthew arrives. It's heavily soaked in Jewish prophecy and tradition, and it attempts to convince the Jews that Jesus indeed was the Messiah. Now here's an interesting fact about the authorship. Not just of the gospel according to Matthew, but the gospel according to Mark, Luke, and John. If you read through all four gospels, none of them explicitly state who the author is. So Matthew never says, hi, my name is Matthew, I wrote this book. Mark never states, hi, my name is Mark, I wrote this book. And so there's kind of like this question of how do you know Matthew wrote this book? And what scholars say is the lack of authorship doesn't take away from the fact that this book is indeed written by a man named Matthew. It kind of confirms it. And the reason why is because it's at these local churches where these leaders gather together and they start compiling these stories together. And Matthew comes and he presents this gospel. And so it's weird if there's a leader of a local church who knows everybody who presents a paper and says, I wrote this. It's the equivalent of me coming before you and saying, 
Hi, my name is Roy, and I wrote this sermon. Like, it's just kind of unneeded. And so in the book, you have this lack of authorship that's kind of placed in this book. And so critics kind of look at this and they say, hey, hold on a second here. How do you know this is the real thing? Um, I kind of thought to myself, you know, are there other important documents that lack authorship that I would kind of be bothered by? And I kind of thought for a moment and I was like, what's something that's really important to me? And my car is kind of important to me. And so I went to my car, I opened the glove box, and I pull out the car user manual. And I looked through the first uh, few pages, and lo and behold, there's actually no author to car manuals. I'm actually curious as to what your experience would be like. But if you open the glove compartment of your car, and you flick open the, math, uh, the, the manual, I wonder if you'll find an author. And my point is this. Just because there isn't an author to an important document... Um, it doesn't change the fact that the document is important. Uh, I use the information of my car manual, and it makes sure that the car runs uh, properly. So it is with the Gospels, that as you read through the content of the Gospels, as you put these principles into practice, uh, they are incredibly important for the maintenance of your life. And so I highly encourage you, as you look through and think through these uh, different issues, um, just to look at the content for the content. Now, the purpose of the book of Matthew... Uh, as I mentioned before, it was really to reconcile the differences between the Jews. And so there's a lot of Jewish um, culture and tradition that's kind of written uh, in this book. It's also a book that kind of bridges the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are a lot of verses that are taken from the Old Testament that are mentioned in the book of Matthew. And so Matthew intentionally puts these cultural references and these texts and um, these prophecies in the book of Matthew to show, hey, there's a connection between Christ and the Old Testament. They are not separate. Another purpose of this book, um, Matthew is kind of um, unique in that there's a lot of emphasis placed upon spreading um, the gospel or spreading, spreading the news of Jesus. And so if you look at the very last few passages of the book of Matthew, there's this... Um, commission, if you will, and scholars kind of call this the Great Commission, where Jesus tells his followers, go spread what I have taught you with everyone around uh, around you. And it's kind of, that emphasis is kind of heavily placed on the book of Matthew. And so this book has been something that's been quite important to uh, the Christian church in general. Matthew is an uh, Matthew is also an important book because it combines narrative, uh, the story of Jesus, and discourse, the teachings of Jesus together into one book. And this book has the most exhaustive collection of Jesus' sermons out of any book in the New Testament. And so what we're going to be doing over the next uh, five weeks from here onward um, is we're going to be going through each of the sermons that Jesus preaches, and we're going to be sharing about why it's significant uh, for, the, for the people back then and why it's important for people like us today today. Um, in the middle of our sermon series, we're going to be having a guest speaker. Um, he has kindly also um, basically said, hey, look, I know you guys are preaching through the book of Matthew. I'm going to, I'll, I'll preach my sermon from the book of Matthew as well. And so um, uh, September 12, we're going to be having a guest speaker. Um, he's a gentleman from Sydney, and if he looks anything like Michael, it's because he's related to him. And so anyway, we're, we're really happy that Michael's dad is going to come and share uh, share with us. And he's been very kind um, He's been very kind to, to fit within our, our sermon series. So what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be covering uh, the first discourse in the book of Matthew. It's found in Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to be focusing on verses 17 to 48. We'll, we'll look at the first two verses and then verses 17 to 48. And we're going to be kind of 
um, exploring this idea of Jesus and morality. And it's in this discourse that Jesus kind of highlights the law, he highlights ethics, he highlights morality, and he connects himself to it. And uh, I want to talk about why this is significant. So if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be reading through portions of this chapter together. Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to look at the first two verses. And here's how it goes. Jesus, seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, and I'm going to skip the first part of what he said, and we're going to jump straight to verse 17. He says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now, Jesus was seen as this radical teacher. He had these new ideas, and he kind of approached different Jewish cultures, and he challenged them. He caused them to think, and he really wanted them to wonder, what is the principle behind this law, behind this teaching, behind this tradition? And so, as the Jewish leaders kind of observed from a distance what Jesus was saying and what Jesus was doing, there was a lot of controversy. They were wondering, is he for our religion or is he against our religion? Is he upholding our standard of morality or is he taking down our standard of morality? And Jesus here in this passage says, listen, I didn't come here to do away with the law. I didn't come here to do away with the commandments. I came here to fulfill that very thing. Now, when Jesus mentions law, what he's talking about is the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I almost quoted the Gospels. I was like, Matthew, Mark, Le-. no, that wasn't it. So G- Jesus basically is referencing the first five books of the Old Testament. He's also referencing the Ten Commandments. And so um, he connects himself to this. Now, the reason why this is important is because there were a group of people that were saying Jesus is separating the importance of the commandment from ourselves. Like, we, he's kind of teaching, uh, his ideas are kind of separating um, our personal accountability to God. He's breaking down this, these rules that we hold very dear. And so, it's interesting, just like people viewed Jesus in the old times, there is this tendency to look at Jesus and kind of think the same thing, that in Christ, he kind of de-emphasizes the commandments. And in Christianity, there are kind of two opposite ends of the spectrum. One side of the spectrum says Jesus does do away with the commandments and they're no longer important. And there's another end of the spectrum that says, no, um, the commandments are really important, but we don't really have to emphasize Christ. And they're these two opposite ends of the spectrum, if you will. If you look at secular society, there's almost a similar idea that morality is important, but Christ is not so important. And so you uphold one, and then you kind of diminish the other. And what Jesus does in this one statement is he kind of clears the field and he says, no, 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 the law is important, and I am connecting myself to it. Morality is important, and I am connecting myself to it. So what I want to basically highlight today is that divinity and morality need to go hand in hand. Divinity and morality need to go hand in hand. It's, um, it poses some challenges to us if you diminish one and elevate the other. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at a few verses where Jesus kind of talks about the law and he kind of references himself in that law as well. So here's the first passage. Um, Matthew, and we've just actually looked at this. Um, first, before I go into that... 
when Jesus says, I came here to fulfill the law, I kind of want to talk about what it means to actually fill something. Now, when he says, I came here to fulfill the law, Jesus came to perform, to complete the instruction, bring to realization the true meaning of the law. In other words, he came to ratify or to officially validate the law. Now, having said that, we're going to look at a few verses together. Um, The first one is a story of the rich young ruler. And the story goes, there's this young man, he kind of has his life together. He's wealthy, he's, um, he has a really good reputation, he's young, he kind of has it together. And he comes to Jesus and he asks him this question, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now there's a loaded question. He's saying, God, or excuse me, he's saying, Jesus, how do I go to heaven? How do I go to heaven? Here's Jesus' response. Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Now, I have a question for you. Do you see a difference between the question that the rich young ruler asks and the answer that Jesus gives? Notice here, the rich young ruler asks, how do I get eternal life? Jesus' response is, I'll just show you how to live. Right? So Jesus' response is not talking about salvation, even if the rich young ruler's question has salvation kind of mixed into his question, if that makes sense. So Jesus says, listen, you want to know how to live? Keep the commandments. And what I want to just highlight here is Jesus is connecting a certain quality of life to commandment keeping. Does that make sense? Okay, here's the next, uh, next passage. There's another story of a wise scribe who comes to Jesus and he asks him this question. And this account is written in, uh, is found in the book of Matthew, also in the book of Mark, or in the gospel according to Mark. And so, um, I just want to highlight Mark's account because I find it his, Jesus' answer is quite interesting. So, basically, Jesus has asked this question, which is the greatest commandment that is written? And Jesus tells him, love God, love your neighbor. And the scribe says to him, right teacher, you have truly stated He is one, and there is no one else besides him, and to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Verse 34, when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Okay, so they're having this dialogue about the commandments, about morality, about ethics. And Jesus states, there are these two very important commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. And the scribe's response is, yes, that's it. And I want to focus on Jesus' response. I'm just going to, I thought we were actually going to be pointing this direction initially. Um, But I just want to highlight, if you look at the wording, notice Jesus says, you've got the kingdom of heaven. And I've, um, I've got excellent drawing skills here. But this is, picture this being the kingdom of heaven, this being the scribe, Uh, this is a scribe, and Jesus says something to him. He says, you are not far from the kingdom of heaven. Now, when he says you're not far from the kingdom of heaven, he's actually saying you haven't arrived there yet. Does that make sense in the wording? Like, you haven't arrived to the kingdom, but you're heading in the right direction. So I want to ask this question. According to Jesus, if you keep the commandments of God or if you recognize the value of the commandments of God, can you make it to heaven? No. The answer is no, right? Because he's not far from the kingdom of heaven. But are the commandments important? 
absolutely, right? Jesus is saying you're heading in the right direction. And so in this story, Jesus kind of connects himself to this idea of the commandments. Let's look at the next passage. Before we go into that. So Jesus connects himself with this idea of morality of the commandments. And basically, morality without Christ is subjective and local. There are tons of laws that people make, and laws are important, but there are some laws that Jesus doesn't connect himself to. Uh, It doesn't mean that they're bad, but it just means that they're more specific to culture, to place, to time. Um, If I could think of something off the top of my head, uh, I would think of gun laws, right? This This is kind of unique, having an American guy talk about gun laws to you in a room full of Australians. But I want to ask this question. If you think about gun laws in America or in, in Australia, basically there are restrictions, correct? Like you, there are heavy restrictions. If you go to America, it's very different. Um, there are a lot of people that are close to me that own guns. Uh, I'm just curious in this room, how many of you know somebody who owns a firearm? Can you raise your hand? Okay. All right. Um, I know lots of people who own firearms. <laughs> if I go on Facebook, it's just all over the place. <laughs> I mean, and I'm not talking about handguns. I'm talking about like assault rifles. And uh, anyway, and they're not they're not law enforcement officers. So anyway, there are these laws that are specific to Australia. There are laws that are specific to America, and they are not universal. Now, when Jesus talks about law, when he talks about morality, when he talks about the Ten Commandments, he's talking about an objective and universal law. Um, and he's saying this is something that's very important. I'm connecting myself to it. And here's why. If you look at John chapter 14, verse 21, Jesus states, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and reveal myself to him. Now notice, Jesus says, Listen, if you keep the commandments, I'm going to reveal myself to you. In other words, you can know what Jesus is like by keeping the commandments. Have you ever wondered, what is Jesus like? Does he have a sense of humor? What makes him sad? What makes him happy? Does, and you just kind of keep asking the questions. And if somebody were to ask that question, how do I get to know Jesus personally? Well, Jesus says here in the Gospel of John, keep the commandments, and I'm going to reveal myself to you. Here's another verse. John chapter 16, verses 7 to 10. Jesus is about to leave his disciples, and he's saying, listen, I'm not going to be with you anymore, but the Holy Spirit is going to come. Now, a couple weeks ago, Christian kind of talked about the importance of prayer, and he mentioned this passage, what the Holy Spirit does. And I want to re-highlight this verse. If you look at verse, um, well, we'll kind of skim through the passage. Jesus says, the Holy Spirit is going to come. He's going to convict you of three things, of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. I want to highlight righteousness. The Holy Spirit comes, he reveals Jesus, and basically what he says is, um, The Holy Spirit is going to convict you of righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. Righteousness is something that is revealed by Jesus himself. And because he is no longer physically on earth, he says the Holy Spirit is going to reveal righteousness to you. In other words, the Holy Spirit is going to be a representative of who I am. I'm linking these verses to say Jesus connects himself to the commandments and it is in connecting himself to the commandments that he reveals righteousness. Does that make sense? So, law, commandments, morality, ethics, it's one thing to be right about something. That's the idea of morality and ethics, to do the right thing. 
but it's something completely different to experience righteousness. And what Jesus is saying is, when you combine myself to morality, you will find righteousness. And that's the difference. It's not just about right doing, it's about righteousness. Um, If I think of something that might be able to explain this, I kind of think of salt. And later on in this passage, Jesus says, I want you to be the salt of the earth. There's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of different articles about how table salt is bad for you. So if you, if you take in lots of sodium chloride, it kind of like f***s your arteries and it's not good for you. And there are other papers that kind of say, hey, look, it's not just salt itself. If you look at organic sodium, it's actually really good for you. And, and the doctors can correct me later on if, uh, if they'd like. But organic, uh, sodium is actually really good for you. But what happens is when they refine when they refine uh, this so- sodium and they pull out sodium chloride, um, it, it takes out these uh, different minerals that are really important for the production of, and I've got a list of things here. Um, it's important for calcium absorption, digestion, bile production, fluid balance, and the function of the brain, kidneys, liver, lymph, blood, spleen, gastric secretions, and so forth and so on. Basically, sodium is really important for you, right? And so... When you look at the law, if you separate Christ from the law, you separate righteousness from right doing. It's like watering down sodium and all you get left is something that's salty, but not necessarily functionally proper for your body. And so what Jesus does is he combines divinity with morality and he says it's really important to understand the context. It's really important to understand the law and within the context of Jesus. So, he now enters into several different teachings about the law. And I want to highlight just four of them with you. So the first one that we're going to be looking at is found in Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to be looking at verse, verses 21 to 26. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. And I'm going to do my best to separate right from righteousness. Or righteous, righteousness from right doing. Now in the Ten Commandments... There is this commandment that um, was trying to communicate to the Israelites, it's wrong to murder. And if you look at that statement by itself, how many of you would disagree that it's wrong to murder? How many of you think it's right to murder? Anybody? All right. So we would say that it's the right thing to do to not murder somebody. Now, Jesus then takes this commandment and he kind of Um, explains it a little bit more in depth. And what he's going to do is he's going to inject himself into the principle of what this commandment is actually trying to teach. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. And let's just read through this together. It says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on your way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown in prison. Assuredly, I say to you, um, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. 
Okay, so here Jesus takes this one commandment, thou shalt not murder, and then he adds about 20 lines to it. Now, if you look at what's added to this idea of don't murder somebody, there are two main concepts that I want to highlight. The first one is Jesus addressing this idea of anger. And what he does, he's, he kind of combines this idea of murder with anger. And the found, what, what he's teaching is the foundation from which murder comes from is actual, it's actually anger. And so Jesus highlights the root of the problem and he says, look, in the Jewish culture, they drew the line at, as long as you don't kill anyone, it's okay. And Jesus would backpedal and redraw that line and say, listen, it's not about you killing somebody, it's about you being unjustly angry with somebody. And he kind of touches on the root problem. Now, if you look at this, there's a second, there's a second thing that's highlighted here. And Jesus spends some time talking about anger and murder, but then he talks about what it means to reconcile. And there are two different scenarios of reconciliation in this passage. The first circumstance is when we wrong somebody else. And that, in verse 25 to 26, what isn't stated there is, the idea is somebody owes someone else some money, and Jesus says, when you wrongfully have taken money from somebody and you haven't paid them back, make sure and reconcile quickly. In other words, pay them quickly, otherwise you're going to get sent to jail, and then you have to pay every penny back in jail. So pay your pennies outside of jail rather than getting sent to jail and paying your pennies then. So reconciliation when we have wronged somebody else, and if you look at verse 23, reconciliation when somebody else has wronged us. So if we're at the altar and we remember that someone has done something against us, we stop what we do, we go to somebody and say, hey, listen, I'm actually upset about something. I need to reconcile with you. And so Jesus highlights both ideas of when somebody does something wrong to you and when you do wrong to somebody else. In both cases, you take responsibility and try to reconcile with that individual. Now notice, reconciliation has very little to do with the actual commandment of murdering, right? But Jesus tacks this on and he says, listen, it's not just about your willingness to not murder somebody. It's really about, are you willing to reconcile with somebody that you're upset with? Are, do you have this mindset of, regardless of if I've done wrong or if somebody else has done wrong, I really want healing in this relationship. And it's within that context that Jesus injects himself and he basically says, this is what righteousness is about. It's about reconciliation. Moving on. So the first idea was about murder and aggression. The second idea that Jesus introduces is the idea of marriage. And I believe it's verses 27 to 30. Verse 27 to 30, it says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin... Pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you than one of your members to perish, than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And so here, Jesus kind of introduces this idea of um, lust and marriage. And basically, he's just saying, Usually, the Jews kind of drew the line at, as long as I don't sleep with another man's wife, or as long as I don't cheat on my own wife, it should be fine. And Jesus would redraw that line and backpedal and say, hold on, 
it's not just about what you're physically doing in terms of action. It's about what do you think about what goes on in your heart. Now, if you continue on, here's where Jesus injects himself. Verse 31. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now, if you look at this, Jesus kind of takes this rule of marriage and kind of like, he elevates it a few notches. Now, if you look at this passage, for what reason does Jesus say it's permissible to get a divorce? As you're reading through the passage. Adultery, right? And in today's society, I would also say, well, abuse is probably a good reason as well. But what Jesus does is he eliminates every other reason for a divorce. Now, back in the day, divorce was kind of interesting. There were two different schools of thought in terms of what was allowed in terms of divorce. Uh, There's this... Um, a passage, if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, it says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanliness in her, he can write a certificate of divorce. And so if you look at this, people would kind of oh, be quite liberal with this law, and they would just kind of say, listen, um, what does it mean to not find favor with somebody? And so there were some people that were saying, listen, I don't find favor with my wife because she's not a good cook. Well, I'm going to divorce her then. And he would divorce her. He would get a written certificate and basically he would say, oh, I get scot-free and I can marry somebody else. And Jesus was seeing these unjust divorces that were taking place. And he kind of says, hey, listen, I'm redefining what is permissible and not permissible. So there was kind of this liberal school of thought that kind of thought, listen, for any reason that you want, if you don't want to stay married to somebody, you can, you can just, you can just divorce. But the original purpose of this was, listen, there are very, very few reasons why you can divorce somebody. And what that was for was to protect the woman, actually. Because in those days, the, the husband is a breadwinner, and the woman is like financially, economically dependent upon her husband. And so if she's getting divorced left, right, and center, then, well, she has no means of living. And so divorce was actually designed to protect, not to encourage separation. And so what Jesus does is, is he takes the line, he steps back and he says, hold on, the real purpose of this idea of divorce, that there actually, there's only one reason why. And once again, I would inject, there are probably two reasons why in our, in our day. One is abuse, the other is adultery. Now, I wonder if in the court of law, if they actually, if in the church even, if they followed this passage, I wonder how many people would get married in the first place. I wonder how many people would get divorced. And and the idea here is Jesus is highlighting not just commitment, but this idea of, listen, if in your marriage there is conflict, um, basically work it out, right? That's That's the implication here. And so from the first idea of murder and aggression, Jesus emphasizes reconciliation. In this second example of marriage and lust and adultery, Jesus is emphasizing reconciliation. Now, Jesus says adultery is permissible, but there are other stories in the Bible where Jesus likens himself as a husband. He looks at his people and calls the, his people his wife or the church his wife. And what he basically does is, if you read the book of Hosea, it's a story of a prophet and Jesus tells Hosea, I want you to go marry a prostitute. And the reason why I want you to marry a prostitute is because she is going to cheat on you and she is going to be unfaithful to you. And then you're supposed to go and win her heart back and marry her again. 
And this idea is that God's people are not faithful to God and they commit adultery all the time and yet God is still committed to reconciliation. Now, what Jesus understands is people are human and obviously it's devastating to find out that somebody has been unfaithful to you. And so therefore, I am allowing you to get a certificate of divorce for that reason. But in reality, from God's perspective, he's just saying no matter what, I am committed to reconciliation. And throughout the history of time, that's exactly what God does with humanity. He tries to reconcile regardless of what humanity does. Here's the third thing, or the third area of the law. The desire of revenge. If you look at Matthew chapter 5, we're going to read verses 38 to 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. So here's this, another level of reconciliation. Basically, when somebody takes advantage of you, and you feel weak, the solution to that is to give and to reconcile. Now, it's interesting because the, the, the natural human behavior is when somebody does something bad to you, well, you do it right back, right? There's that saying, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And that's actually a Bible verse, right? That's like the golden rule. Well, Jesus introduces this idea and says, listen, yes, it's true. Like, of course, through human justice, you can say, well, I have the right to do something back to you. But he, he kind of redraws that line, steps back, and he says, listen, it's not just about right doing. It's about righteousness. And righteousness is the ability to reconcile. So when somebody takes advantage of you and makes you feel weak, the way that you feel strong is by giving. So if somebody forces you, you know what? I'm going to sue you for your jacket. Well, I guess the translation is give them your undies too, right? Like, you know what? Don't just take my jacket. Here you go, right? And the idea, the idea of that is, one, you are reconciling. One, you are going above and beyond the call of duty. But it's also showing that person, this brings shame upon me. And I'm giving you something so that you can see how shameful it really is. So anyway, there's this idea of reconciliation. And reconciliation, it's kind of interesting. When you reconcile with somebody, you find that um, it brings about genuine conviction about what what you've done. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in an argument with somebody and in the process of reconciling in that argument, you embrace that person, you hug that person, or you just say, hey, listen, I'm really sorry. I've done something that was wrong to you. And in that, prop- in that process of saying sorry, the, the conviction of what has actually happened deepens in your heart. I don't know if you've experienced that. Um, I'll give an example. I didn't clear this with Jinnah, but... Um, There are times where I'll do something, I've done something, and I need to say sorry, right? And for a moment, I don't want to say sorry. It makes it like a hundred times worse, right? Because she's like, she'll tell me, just say sorry. I'm like, no, I don't want to say sorry. I didn't do anything wrong, right? And then the moment I say, look, actually, I know where you're coming from, and I am sorry that I did that. As soon as I say, as soon as I say that, it makes me realize even deeper, yeah, that, that really did hurt her. And, and, yeah, I don't, I don't want to do that again, right? And so that's the idea of that shame thing. You reveal to them, this really was hurtful. And in that reconciliation, it deepens that understanding. So now that I've repeated myself five times, we'll move on. Here's the final part of um, Jesus' 
uh, list of commands. If you look at verse 43, we're going to go to verse 48 to finish off this chapter. Jesus gives the ultimate pinnacle command of what it means to reconcile. And in verse 43 to verse 48, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. And he moves on. I just want to go straight down to verse 48. And he says, Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. When we think of the Ten Commandments, when we think of the law, if we keep the law, there's this idea of, I did the right thing. I am now perfect. I have obeyed. And here at the end of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And when I think of that word, I think of proactive obedience. Now, there is this passage in Luke, chapter 6, verse 27. And if you have your Bibles, can you turn there? Luke chapter 6, and verse 27. And if you look at Luke chapter 6, verse 27, it's the same account, it's the same, or excuse me, it's the same story, different account. And here's what Here's how the passage goes. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. And we've, we've just read that. And I want to jump down all the way to verse 36. Notice Jesus says, therefore be, help me out here, merciful just as your father also is merciful. Now notice here in this account, the word perfect is interchanged with the word merciful. And I just want to highlight in the system of morality or the system of ethics from God's perspective, perfection isn't so much about you doing the right thing. Perfection is more how you handle people who do the wrong thing. Does that make sense? So perfection is not so much you doing the right thing. Perfection is about how you handle people who do the wrong thing. So Jesus says, don't be angry, don't murder, reconcile, right? He says, don't divorce your, your, your partner. Reconcile. Don't lash out and have revenge on people even if they deserve it. Reconcile. And so this idea of righteousness is constantly repeated throughout the Beatitudes. So when Jesus talks about the commandments, yes, he wants his people, his followers to do the right thing. But true perfection is how do you handle people who do the wrong thing? And the reason why this is important is because if you and I stand before the judgment seat of God, if you and I try to keep the commandments of God, the reality is, I don't know if there's anybody in this room who can say, I'm, I, I've kept all ten commandments my whole life. You know, I followed the whole Bible my whole life. It's just, it's impossible. It is impossible. And how God treats us is, He sends Jesus to die for us, to reconcile with us, so that we can experience healing and reconciliation. And that's what it means to fulfill the law. Yes, to try and do the right thing. And at the same time, when we are not able to do the right thing, to understand that there is forgiveness and basically how to establish reconciliation and healing. And so here when Jesus goes up on the mountain and he opens his mouth, the Bible says that he goes up to the mountain and he begins to teach. There's this parallel of Moses in the Old Testament 
going up to the mount, going up to Mount Sinai, he receives the Ten Commandments and he teaches his people. And Jesus goes up to this mountain and he begins to teach his people a second time. This is really what it means to keep the commandments. So I hope that today, as we discuss, as we think about morality, as we think about morality connected with divinity, that we would be able to experience not just right doing, but righteousness. And、um, yeah, I just hope that as we continue on as a church, that we would experience that kind of righteousness in our own lives and with each other at church. And、um, yeah, may God bless you.